Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is a show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Jen De La Vega, private chef, caterer, founder of Ranwiches, a curated food blog, and author of Showdown Comfort Food, Chili and Barbecue, bold flavors from wild cooking contests. Jen has participated in many Brooklyn-based food competitions, including the 2014 Brooklyn Chili Takedown, and won the 2013 Brooklyn Bacon Takedown and 2012 Project Parlor Summer Barbecue Competition. She has also been a contestant on Guy's Grocery Games on the Food Network and is the editor-at-large of Put an Egg on It, an independent food magazine based in New York. She lives in Brooklyn. Jen! Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Hungry Society. Thank you for having me. And when someone else says my bio, it sounds so much better <laughs> than when I say it. So thank you for that. I'm doing your research. Yeah. Um, so speaking of research, I in order to get ready for this interview, I watched a few things, <laughs> including your guys' grocery games episode about yes. cheese. Yes. Which I feel like you were robbed. I mean... We're not supposed to talk about the outcome oh, of, okay. of the show as contestants. I technically did not just now. So <laughs> I will say that I had an excellent time on that show. And plus, we got to work with so much expensive cheese mm-hmm. that I would never usually buy a whole wheel of and cut up and put into an ice cream. So. Right. <laughs> yes, you made a cheese ice cream on the show. If you haven't seen the episode, you should definitely go to Google and look it up. It's very funny. There, I will say just... There were a few too many cheese puns for me from Guy Fieri, <laughs> but you know. Yeah, I believe it is season 10, episode 5. Yes. Cheesy special. Um, but I also watched um, an episode of Chef Shock mm-hmm. or two on um, Twitch, which can you explain Twitch? The Absolutely. Platform? So Twitch is a streaming platform and mostly, mostly gamers use it to show what they're playing um, and you know, video cast uh, commentary about games that they're playing or um, it's like visual podcasting, mostly for games. Mm -hmm. But in uh, recent months, Twitch has started to branch out a new department called Twitch Creative and sort of trying to incubate more content that is not gaming. For example, Chef Shock is a cooking show with a video game slant. Right. (laughs) Uh, The host, Justin Warner, and I really, really love video games. And I am very active in video game music culture and uh, chip music, so it was such a natural thing for us to put together. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so fascinating because it's just, it's this new media, but combined with food media and like a cooking show, which is pretty old. Um, yeah. And it's like the screen is 
Imagine watching a live stream of someone in their kitchen and next to the video, there's a, a chat room. Mm -hmm. And then on the bottom, other live streams that are happening at the same time. Yes. It was just like, it, it blew my mind. I was just like, I've never seen like a it's, cooking show like this. And I think it's a really interesting way to kind of. It's sort of like the matrix to, yeah. <laughs> right. to manage. I was, my official title was uh, moderator. So as the stream was going on, people had questions. I would either answer them out loud on video stream or type very quickly while I was talking, you know. So it was, uh, it was a very big challenge for my attention span. And I, 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 work in, I used to work in social media, and so it was a natural fit for me to try mm -hmm. uh, this new sort of position. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and another position that you have is editor-at-large of Put Egg on It, yes. which uh, was part of this great, great article in the New York Times by Tejal Rao, who's oh, been on this thank show. thank you. Thank you, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Yeah, shout out to Tejal. Um, she's been a guest here. And it, talking about independent food writing and these um, different publications. Absolutely. Can you talk about your work at Put an Egg on It? Yes, 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 I can. Um, first of all, Put an Egg on It was founded by Sarah Keogh and Ralph McGinnis 10 years ago. So we're celebrating our 10th anniversary in May. I've, I've joined maybe three or four years ago. I'm sort of a roving reporter. I get to work on a lot of projects of my own creation, and I get to be wacky. <laughs> uh, so... I'm in charge of some sections, uh, like our cooking tips and putting together recipe sections now. And it's such a fun little zine. And it's so unique. It's, it focuses a lot on the art and communal joys of eating. It's printed on green paper. Uh, we pride ourselves on great photography. And it sort of sticks out on the bookshelf. It's, it's small. It's not full size like uh, Cherry Bomb or Ambrosia. And uh, we're starting to increase the page size. I think the next one's going to be over 100 pages. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, we got to go big for the 10th anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so something else that you do, and I feel like I've said that like a few times now because <laughs> you are, do so many different many things. things. Yeah. In the food and internet space. But it, if, oh, so listeners, you should go to... Jen De La Vega's Randwich's YouTube channel. Oh. There are um, entire like sections. Playlists. Yeah. Yes. Playlists dedicated to cheese gifts, egg, there's egg Egg gifts, popping. Egg popping Specifically gifts. Specifically like egg, egg yolks. Egg yes. Um, and you did a Kickstarter. Yes. To be able to make all the different cheese gifts. Yeah. And oh. put them on the internet. So the nacho one is upcoming. Right. So we're filming that next Saturday, actually. We successfully funded a Kickstarter so that we could try to make 100 types of nachos in one day. And for 50 people that are attending, it's only two kinds of nachos per person. So mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like a lot. <laughs> but in the past, I've done a project called the Egg Centennial, where we attempted to make... I cooked all the eggs and pop a hundred egg yolks on camera and it, this is this is not something that came out of nowhere this was a creative prompt from kickstarter itself every january they have an initiative called the make 100 and so they ask uh collaborators to create projects uh to start the year off get your creative juices running and try to make an addition of you know 100 things 
and it could be small, it could be stickers, it could be pins. But for me, a lot of what I do is experiential with food, mm-hmm. and so I try to create media from from these parties. You know, it, it seems like a lot of fun for you. You know, you're just assembling nachos and popping an egg yolk. That's your part of it, and it's communal and awesome. But for me, I get a kick out of making that montage at the end. <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> I not only am I editing it together, I made all the music too. That, you know, was another part of my life and career is making music. So uh, it, it kind of taps all of the parts of my brain that work together. <laughs> yeah. Every kind of project that you touch is just, it's so fun. And it, it shows the potential of food and like these new media Mm -hmm. Um, projects to work together and tell a story absolutely did did you imagine that you this is what you would be doing no (laughs) absolutely not (laughs) when I was little I really wanted to be an Olympic track coach you know or (laughs) okay that's very specific or a marine biologist or I wanted to design Nike shoes and there were so many other things that I wanted to be but this is where I am now and who knows if this is what I will still continue to be (laughs) in a year but uh for now, this is what I'm in love with, and um, the way that I approach it, because I'm also a caterer, and I think that also taps into a lot of my party party aspect, mm-hmm. like uh, figuring it, figuring out what people want, and making it happen no matter what the budget is, is such a fun challenge. It is like being on Chopped or on a <laughs> TV show, you know, but it's real life, and there's real people their feelings and their wallets, you know, involved. <laughs> so it's much more meaningful that way. <laughs> so I, I specifically wanted to talk to you about the potential for food stories to be told in these ways. Do you think that food media right now is like doing a good job of incorporating these new spaces or you think we still have a long way to go? I think in my experience, publications have been pretty slow to adopt. And I think now with so many people getting laid off and less space at the major publications for different voices it's it's sort of the reason why that article came out in the New York Times about indie zines and marginalized voices like we needed somewhere to put it and so we made our own thing and i do see that their teenage culture is actually embracing zines because it's not online your parents can't read it (laughs) right you know you have to know something to find out about you know you have to know the right people to find out about it and so i think there's this awesome resurgence of zine culture coming back in i think collaboration with the digital world we have room for more video we have room for gifts we have room for more experiential storytelling events installations museum experiences usually food is something that you do not encounter in the museum except for in the cafe right. or if it's a painting of something but actual tangible food that you can touch that is something that i'm starting to see more of which is very exciting mm-hmm. yeah is that something that you want to move more into like the installation kind of experiential space yes <laughs> I have a few ideas brewing with a couple galleries actually this summer. Oh wow! So hopefully I'll get to talk about that soon. But uh, I feel that our reach has not—we have not, you know, reached out far enough into the weird, you know, where the boundaries are, where, where we right. can go with food. And it's not just the internet anymore, and it's not just a magazine you can hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. 
food is, we eat it, we can smell it. There's so many more different ways that we can interact with it. Why do you think that food is so like well equipped to, to do that? Because we have to, <laughs> we have to eat it. Like it doesn't matter if it is, uh, you know, simple canned food or if it's fine dining, it, everybody has to eat. <laughs> so I think there's so much material to work with and so much that we don't know still. About food or about the internet? About both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like you combine them both in a way that's like very surprising and very fun. I, in my experience, people don't know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. And so there's this point where we can have a conversation about it. Like, why do you spend time making all these egg popping gifts? Like, why do you do that? And they're like, well, why do people click on it and view it so much? Like, why is this food porn so attractive to people? You know? <laughs> why is food porn attractive to people? Do you know why? And the fascinating thing about it is it's a lot of people who don't cook love these things. And I try to make that an entry point in the comments or as I'm sharing these things. Well, you know, do you know how easy it is? And so I'll try to share recipes or I'll try to share a tutorial along with it. You know, try to get them thinking about the possibility that you could have it yourself. Mm. And I think that's a pretty wonderful door to open. And as speaking as somebody who was a very picky eater growing up, <laughs> I refused to eat many vegetables. I was a Taco Bell, in and out kind of girl. I, I ate a lot of MSG, ramen packs, or I would take the ramen pack and put it on my popcorn, you know? Like, oh, wow, that's a great idea. I, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I would even eat the dry ramen with just the seasoning, like chips. And so I, did, I was not open to that. And so for me to flip the switch so dramatically and to fall into the rabbit hole that is the food industry and food culture, it says a lot about how far someone can go. Mm. <laughs> and I advocate for people to join me in that. Go crazy, go nuts, try all the things, um, face your fears. Uh, you know, I didn't eat seafood until two years ago. I, oh, wow. Yeah, like normal things like tomatoes and onions were things that I would pick off of my everything pizza. <laughs> like my mom would come home from Costco with everything pizza and I would spend at least 20 minutes pulling off all the olives and bell peppers. That's a lot of time. It is. Yeah. But I realized that it was just that I had a particular way that I like to eat. I have preferred mouthfeel. Like, I like crispier things. I don't like slimy things. I learned that I like mushrooms that are grilled and not canned. You know, there's a certain textural things. There's so many possibilities that I didn't realize that I, you know... I fell into it. <laughs> so one, when you said Costco pizza, I just had a bunch of flashbacks, <laughs> like um, like ratatouille. Oh yeah, you know, um, of just that giant pizza that's somehow three dollars and seventy five cents, right? And can feed like five people. But um, also, when you were talking about that entry point, mm -hmm. the so it was my first time watching anything on Twitch when I watched your the food program that you were on, mm -hmm. and there were so many people in the comments who were like oh, I think I could do this, yeah. or this is awesome, or, well, do you know anything about this ingredient? Or 
this technique or, or substitutions right. in case somebody had a gluten gluten allergy mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, and it it is like this approachable way for people to feel like they can cook too. So that's why I thought it was so interesting, and it's like a medium that could really be cool when combined with not just cooking shows but food media in general. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's you know watching the Food Network growing up, I can't text Alden Brown <laughs> while he's right. on the screen <laughs> right. and say like what is that you just put away or what size is that jar or what portion should I buy and the interactivity of, of Twitch was magical we were able to really connect with our audiences and I actually still talk to a lot of them on Twitter or on Instagram and they still check in on me and it's wonderful to see them make the things that we had made and show it to us. And so we feel like proud parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> yeah, that's so great that um, people were cooking and then showing you the pictures of it. Yeah, that was such a cool segment. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And if you're listening, you should definitely, definitely check it out. It's it's very interesting. Um, you were an offenor. Off Am I saying that yes. right? Yes. Okay, yes. Basically, someone who would age cheeses yeah and you did this after culinary school or Ooh, i think it gets muddy it gets <laughs> right. really muddy but i think it was concurrent so i was interning at murray's cheese on Bleecker street and i feel like they've since moved a majority of the operations to long island city but there was a time where they had four cheese caves underneath the store and so they're clean rooms wow. that have uh, different environments for cheese to thrive so there are four or five general categories of cheese and they vary in humidity and uh, temperature and just ambient culture so (laughs) there's just so many things and so we put all the uh you know young brie like bloomy rind goat cheeses and and breeze and triple crims in one refrigeration area. And then the Gouda is the large format parms. Like they would all be in another room. And so we would do different things to make sure they were maturing in the right way and promoting the right kind of mold. And so they were ready for sale. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm just trying to imagine four caves underneath that store on Bleecker Street. Like, is this, did you hear the subway, like, going by, too? Yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> when you were in the caves? Right by West 4th. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, but we actually have a cheese background in common. I used to be a cheesemaker oh. in, in Boston. Yeah, I worked for a fresh, like, Italian cheese shop. Yeah. And I would make uh, mozzarella and ricotta and scamorza and burrata and farmer's cheese and wow. all of that. That lactic acid on your hands, though. On your on your everything. Like, I would leave <laughs> work and just smell like curd yeah. all I thought day. it was nice for my hands. Yeah. Even though it was scalding hot to make the mozzarella. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah, you build up the... It, your um, hands felt really nice. Afterwards. Yeah, you build up the, like, resistance to the heat, though. <laughs> What's your favorite cheese? Oh, girl. <laughs> you can't ask me that. You can't ask me that. That's like asking about my favorite children. No, uh... <laughs> There is one cheese that I've been pining after, and I've only had it once, and it was Gaperon. Gaperon is a yellow uh, French cheese, and the cows eat a lot of garlic. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's like a little baseball, and it has a yellow mold. It looks like springtime. 
when you get it. And uh, you get the garlic note when you bite into it. But I've only ever had it once. And mm-hmm. I hope that we can import it again soon. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just sad that uh, there are cheeses that are illegal, you know, to import. Yes. And there are many other things that are legal in the U.S. that are dangerous and terrible. Right. That but, should not be. Yeah. But cheese should not be something <laughs> that is regulated so hard. It was. Is there a cheese that kind of sparked your interest in all cheeses that you had and you were like, wow, like... Oh, gosh. It wasn't necessarily a cheese. It was that, speaking more to my love of organizing parties and (laughs) food experiences, when I was in the music industry, uh, my friends and I would get together on Sunday afternoons. And for a year and a half straight, we would make grilled cheese. And I kept trying to change the cheese every week because I get bored so quickly. And I hit a wall like... I don't know anything beyond cheddar and mozzarella and pepper jack. And so I started reading The Cheese Primer by Steve Jenkins of Fairway. (laughs) And I read through the whole thing. It was like an encyclopedia. And I went nuts. And I was like, where can I learn about this stuff in person? And that's when I started interning at Murray's. And it was sort of an explosion. (laughs) Like knowledge. You know, I really wanted to be a cheese librarian. (laughs) And I, you know, I feel like I got there a little bit without a certification, but, you know, I really studied. That would be a great um, article and also, like, I sitcom for some reason in my head, like, popped <laughs> in, like, you making the 50 grilled cheeses yeah. every weekend for however many months that Yeah, is. I mean, I, it could be a book. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in my back yeah, pocket. Yeah, lock that one away in my back pocket. and come back because that's a great idea. I mean, it was it was a great time because it was an escape for us when I was working in a whole other industry. The food was something else for us to focus on when the music industry was actually changing from CDs to MP3s. Mm. So it was a very tumultuous time. People were losing <laughs> their jobs. People, you know, we were getting hired less and less to to mail CDs out, and so it was a big shakeup. Mm-hmm. And you comforted yourself with, with grilled, grilled cheese. cheese. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. Why not? Maybe a rom-com, too. Oh. <laughs> my, one of my favorite movies is You've Got Mail, so thank you. There you uh, go. You've Got a Grilled Cheese. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more A Hungry Society. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern 
fair at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chauhan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. All right. So we're back with Jen De La Vega. Hello. <laughs> of Brand Witches and Put an Egg on It. And now we're going to talk about dining. So did your family have any dining traditions when you were growing up? Yeah, actually. When I was younger, my step-grandmother lived with us, Nai Norma lived with us, and uh, we wouldn't have a traditional breakfast, like, we wouldn't have eggs or bacon, you know. We would, she would heat me up a mug of Ovaltine and stuff a pandesal, like like a dinner roll, Mm -hmm. on top, and so it would get a soggy bottom, (laughs) and I would have to fish it out, eat the bottom, and and then dip my bread in, into the Ovaltine. That was my breakfast. And I don't know where that comes from because I didn't know anyone else that did it. I asked. Right. <laughs> I asked around. I thought it was a Filipino thing, but it, it wasn't. The, uh, the bread is Filipino pan de sal. It's uh, just, you know, like, like a dinner roll. But that was so interesting, and it really sticks in my mind as something that was regular and a way to start the day. It was like a treat. Uh, but I don't really do that so much anymore. I don't have a sweet tooth. Another thing that we did regularly was my mom required all of us to sit at the dining table at dinner. It's usually 7 o'clock. Even if I wasn't hungry, I would have to sit there, and I would sit there with my, my Costco soda. <laughs> I would get cases of Costco soda and, and just scowl. Like, I'm not hungry at the same time as you guys. Because I was a night owl, and mm-hmm. I generally uh, ate junk food at night. But we would sit there, and I'm just, uh, my eyes rolling back in my head. But we would always watch Jeopardy. That was my dad's thing. He always made us watch Jeopardy while we were eating dinner. And it wasn't so much focus on the food. It was who was answering more of the questions. <laughs> we were very competitive. My, my mom and dad will argue up and down that they're not competitive, and they would never compare my brother and I. But there was, <laughs> there was a little bit sowing of, <laughs> of competition. And we would, you know, yell the answers out or mumble it under our breath. Like, I'm not participating because I'm a <laughs> rebelling teenager. Right. But, yeah, we would, you know, compete. And there was a point when my brother and I were getting a little older and we started answering more of the questions right. And my dad would actually not know what we were talking about because it was, you know, about all culture. Mm -hmm. Jeopardy categories go, you know, like anime now (laughs) and like (laughs) music. And so my dad just started huffing and puffing. And so that's that's just a a big memory that sticks out in my mind, Jeopardy and dinner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What was on the table? We had placemats. (laughs) 
<laughs> like these woven placemats, maybe a table runner. And it alternated between uh, Filipino food and fast food. Mm. So uh, stuff that was easy because both of my parents worked. My dad's an engineer. My mom's a nurse. And so what they could bring back on the way. We literally lived in a desert, food desert. We were in the Mojave Desert. <laughs> oh, wow. And so their commutes were pretty far away. And so whatever was on the way, you know, was easy for us. Like there was this one really great taqueria that I liked it's called Ca- Casita Lopez. And they would sometimes pick up salsa and tacos for us. But most of the time it was easy, like Costco food, Taco Bell, uh, McDonald's. Mm-hmm. I even had my birthdays maybe up until I was 10 at McDonald's. <laughs> yes. Because there were just so many of them and they yeah. actually did have public party programming and, and nice playgrounds in the Bay Area because we were in San Francisco before that. So I had a very MSG-packed life. <laughs> but when my mother did have time or we had an older relative over or somebody was around and brought food, it would be Filipino food. So like adobo, pancit, and empanadas and stuffed stuffed fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many different things. But at the time, I did not appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I told you I was a picky eater. And so I refused. Like <laughs> even, <laughs> even if we had like a beef stew, I would only drink the sabao. Sabao is the, the soup. So I'd only ladle just the, anything without a chunk in it. I would have that with rice, which I've now come to know as nabe, which, you know, or um, I forget that there was another Japanese name for ri- tea rice or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name, but I, I didn't eat very much. I would just have the bare minimum of what was Filipino food. And which is why now I'm sort of backpedaling like right. heartily <laughs> into it. And I'm really trying to learn so much about this culture that I had sort of rejected when I was younger. I had the, I had a privilege, you know, I was Filipino American. I'm first generation here. I, I have no accent. Like <laughs> there's so much that I took for granted when it came to food and now I feel like I'm making up for it. You're like, <laughs> making oh, up for it I now. missed out on so many good so meals. And now people are getting older, and I'm going to lose the access to those recipes and that experience. And I live across the country from my parents and and the rest of my family, so it's it's hard for me to have that recreate that family experience here. Like I mean, I do have very close friends who are like my family, but. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to come over with a tray of bunset randomly. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're not going to come over with a fish. <laughs> just even the, um, just in my mind, envisioning, like, recreating the food of the Philippines in a literal desert. Yes. When um, the Philippines are... Is it archipelago? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, there's another thing to lock away. That's true. That's <laughs> the true. The food of the Philippines in... In a an desert. actual <laughs> desert. Um, yeah. Can you point to a restaurant experience that shaped you? I have several, but I would say generally it was Chinese cuisine. Mm-hmm. My mother's side of the family, who are all in the Bay Area, they are. We have a. I have a lot of aunts and uncles, and for us to eat out, it was a, a big deal. <laughs> and so in El Sobrante, California, which is a tiny little town, that's where my grandparents' house was, and we would go to Uncle Chung's. Um, and we would get the biggest table. It had the Lazy Susan. That How us, many people are we talking? Oh, gosh. Oh, 
Well, I have five aunts and uncles, but they have spouses and children. So mm-hmm. my mom is one of six. So. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot of people, <laughs> and then we, we, you know, we would have peripheral aunties and uncles who are extended who would just tag along, and so <laughs> so it would maybe be about fifteen to twenty people, depending on what we were celebrating. And my grandfather, he had gone there for years, and so he would know what to order. They actually would just say them say the things out loud like they were like the regular you know like <laughs> these four dishes my favorite was the lemon chicken it you know it was like a deep fried cutlet with like really fluffy batter super super tart sauce i ate it up so much and in their sodas whenever i would order a sprite they had a you know maraschino cherry <laughs> with like a toy monkey with its tail hanging off the glass, and I collected those. Uh, yeah, I bet that sounds oh my gosh. perfect for a child. And so, I have a lot of memories of celebrating at Uncle Chung's. And when my parents moved to the Southern California, we didn't have our Uncle Chung's, but we did discover Sambu Barbecue, which is um, maybe forty-five minute drive from our house, but. It's on the way to the airport. So if I'm getting picked up, I'll be like, can we stop by Sam Wu? And I want the salt and pepper fried pork chop. I want the duck. You know, we, I, there are dishes that I want when I'm passing by. And so we found our own little version of that, you know, moving down to Southern California. Wow. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds so good. Y'all, you should check out these restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite restaurant right now? Oh, right now? gosh right now (laughs) (laughs) at this very moment this very moment (laughs) i really love glassery at the top of greenpoint i just love that grilled flatbread and dipping things i love dipping things (laughs) i don't know about y'all i love just there just ripping apart of freshly grilled flatbread and just dipping it into many things and so they have this brunch where you can get you know like nine sauces like hummus and eggplant and all kinds of, of wonderful things. And glassery is just so refreshing. Oh, wow. Lovely. Yeah. It sounds really good. Mm-hmm. Do you have, a, well, you said Sam Lou's, but do you have another favorite restaurant outside of New York? Oh, gosh. Outside of New York. There's so much. <laughs> well, I've been hanging out a lot in San Francisco and Oakland. And my aunt took me to Duende, which is tapas. I, I have an affinity for Spanish cuisine, mostly because it, 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 when you dig back into Philippine culture and history, you will crash into the Spanish, you know, occupation of the Philippines. And so some of our dishes do come from Spain. And so I've, I've kind of dived into it head first. And I did fall in love with the format because... I don't eat very much. I have a very small appetite, I've learned. And so tapas are perfect for me. I can say stop, you know, after two or three things. That's it. <laughs> have okay. you been to Spain? I have. Been to Barcelona. Wow. When was that? I just went last June. I went to Primavera Sound. So I was, you know, addressing both my loves of music and food. So I went to music festival saw so many artists that I never thought that I would see like Solange oh wow and then uh, ate every single day <laughs> lots of hamon <laughs> yes. so much hamon. As, as you are supposed to do when you go to Spain right as much hamon as possible <laughs> <laughs> so since you've been in New York for a while um, and been 
you know, had so many jobs in, in the industry. What do you make of the current, like, food and restaurant culture in New York? I think there is an unhealthy focus on delivery. And I think there are a few companies out there who are encouraging people not to cook. And that bothers me. Like, I think that's a life skill. I think every adult person should have at least one dish they know how to make. And it just doesn't seem helpful to tell people not to cook. (laughs) And with delivery, I feel like you're not getting the food the way that it was intended to be. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that can happen in transit, like something getting oversteamed or it falling over or I don't know. There's just so much malfunction that can human error that can happen with, with delivery. And it's not to say that the people doing the deliveries are doing a bad job or, you know, or it's not something that should ever happen. I think delivery helps people get food, but I think we're over rotating into that direction. And for me, I had a project. Well, this is where my blog comes from. It's called, it's Randwiches, meaning random sandwiches. (laughs) And the project was based in delivery. And there's so much overhead when it comes to that, like the person that is delivering. And most of the time it was me because I could not afford to hire somebody at the time because it's, you know, it's a passion project. And there's so much more to consider. There's packaging, there is transportation, like subway or a bike or, you know, that sort of thing. And what the sandwiches would not be the most, like the 100% effort that I want it to be when it's on a plate. Right. Like it didn't just come off the grill. And that sort of bothers me a little bit. And so I've sort of stopped delivering hot sandwiches. I, 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 don't, I don't cater hot sandwiches anymore. So it was like you put in all this effort and then on the end. And it's it just like, just oh, the bread's end. a little chewy and <laughs> it's not as intended. And I always have this pit in my stomach about it. And so I think meal kits are great. I think uh, they help people who don't know anything about kitchens or portions or or following recipes yet. But there's this, you know, middle experience gap. There are people who do know a little bit more and don't need the prepackaged thing, but they don't exactly know what to do. You know, if you buy some odd spice or not odd, but spice that you don't use in everything Mm -hmm. they have this knowledge gap of how do I use the rest of the bottle and so I think that's something that I try to to teach people when I'm when I'm writing about new ingredients or for example I'm helping local roots it's a CSA here in in New York whenever uh, I get my share I try to do a video or gifts or or blog posts or tweets about the new vegetables that are there like Gosh, I got turnips every week during the winter. How many different kinds of ways can I make turnips? It's so boring. But doing a lot of research and, and, and really committing to it, I've I found that there are turnip burgers. I found that there are different ways to pickle turnips, not just with vinegar, but with kombu, like seaweed. So I I think there's room to grow there as as a New York society. We can get over the delivery and meal meal kit part. Like, once you graduate, not mm-hmm. get over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to dismiss those things. They are vital to the industry. But I think there's this next step that 
that we could be elevating, like education wise, Mm -hmm. you know, restaurants could be having off hours classes, places like the Brooklyn Kitchen could have more, you know, there's could be more, more, more of that. And so that's my whole soapbox. (laughs) Your soapbox. I am so passionate about it. I was was listening to you and I was just thinking like, oh, it makes it makes perfect sense that um, you found like a way to share your love of food on the Internet because everything that you've talked about so far filters down to you really like parties and people. I do. And having all of the people you love and people you don't know are like circled around food mm-hmm. and so why not the internet yes yeah. it's a big party mm-hmm. it is <laughs> a big party <laughs> except when it's not but yeah except for except some when it's corners not. when it's not but it's a great way for I you to like try to make a party kind of uh, find find your tribe and pull all your people close together absolutely yeah yes um so there are some questions that i always ask sure. i guess can you talk about one of the worst experiences you've had in a restaurant, and you can name it, but you don't have to. No, I'll, I'll name it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I told you earlier before, it, it is a, no fault of the restaurant. I want to make it clear that it was n- not the restaurant or its staff. It's like when lawyers say to say allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. So a few of my close friends know that if they ever mention per se to me again, I will tell this story. Because I get so riled up about it. <laughs> uh, we had a friend who was who was moving away, and she wanted to have a big, you know, a big uh, big to do going away dinner, and she picked per se. And a, a lot of us were like, yeah, man, let's drop some dollars. <laughs> yeah, so Per Se is a Thomas Keller restaurant here in New York that is very pricey. Yes. Like uh, at least 100 per person, I'd say. More than that, yes. <laughs> so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the service. The, 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 the experience was lovely. Like the room was lovely. The menu was amazing. The food was delicious. There was bad company. There was one person who had a few drinks before the dinner and I don't think was experienced with tasting menus because, you know, it's 15 courses or so, 14, 15 courses. It's a lot of food. And so this person maybe had too much to drink and uh, was belligerent, uh, left the table for 20 minutes and we were like, wonder what he could be doing right now. And did they hold the course until the person came Uh, back? Not really, no. Okay. I think, no, I don't, I don't think they held the course because there were so many of us. (laughs) They were just like, get it out of here. Yeah, that guy, you know, whatever. (laughs) He like even took out a vape pen and I, I like gave him mom eyes. Like I (laughs) shot daggers. I shot daggers with my eyeballs and I was like, you put that away right now. And I was very upset with this person. And at the end of the night, when you get the bill, it's a lot of money. And I just had this, you know, Marge Simpson. (laughs) And that, yeah, that's probably one of the worst restaurant experiences I've ever had. And again, it was not per se's fault. (laughs) It was this one person. How big was the group that you were dining with? Eight people. Oh, my God. At a fine dining restaurant. Yeah. It's a lot. That is a lot. There were several times during the dinner that some, you know, a few of us were like, can you please stop? Oh, or can no. You please? He got, or she, I don't want to, you know. This person. This yeah. person. This person. He or she um, got the talk from the rest several of the people. table. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, they were out of line. Yeah. 
But I love those friends. And, you know, I, you guys, I'm sorry I had to talk about this on the radio. <laughs> but I had to. Anytime anyone asks me about per se or my worst dining experience, that's the story. <laughs> so, uh, Jen, my last question for you. Sure. If you could have your last meal in the restaurant, oh gosh, where would it be, and who is invited? I don't even. I don't know about a restaurant. Yeah, I mean, because I'm be a, anywhere. Because I'm a caterer, so I mean, I would love. Do you know that venue, the Foundry, in Long Island City? Mm-mm. Okay, wedding industry people would know. <laughs> this is a, this is a beautiful building, Long Island City. It it looks like a castle kind of. It has a lovely courtyard. Um, I catered a couple of weddings there um, with my former employer, Roquette Catering. Uh, they used to be homemade Brooklyn. Uh, when the uh, hurricane hit, they their restaurant was damaged, mm. and they eventually moved their restaurant upstate. Anyway. I catered a couple weddings with them at the Foundry, and we did a Harry Potter-themed wedding. Oh, wow. And had chairs and, like, candelabras hanging from the ceiling. And so you can turn this room into anything you want. And so what I would do, (laughs) I would get all the cheese that I can (laughs) and just have a bit like have you ever heard of the cheesemongers invitational Mm-mm. oh my goodness so there's an olympics for cheese counter people like people oh, wow. who cut cheese for a living and they they judge you on perfect pairings and uh weighing exactly a quarter pound of cheese oh wow yeah. y'all if you ever have a chance to go to cheesemongers invitational it's fun to watch and there's a big smorgasbord of cheese so what I would do, I'd just have a long table, <laughs> like Harry Potter, like a big hall of just cheese wheels. I would have like a hollowed out Parmesan and we'd be tossing pasta in there. And then we would have a bunch of fondue pots. I'd have a raclette, different arms of raclette, different sizes. You know, we would just go nuts. It would be like a wedding for myself. <laughs> With all cheese. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I would invite all my loved ones. I would invite Justin Warner. I would invite Guy Fieri if he would come. <laughs> I think he has to come. It's true. He has to. Yeah. Papa. <laughs> what, are, what are you drinking? Are you drinking anything? Oh, man. I, well, I like a lot of Chacolina, which is like a Basque frisant. Like it's a nice light wine. And then for dessert, my favorite, favorite, favorite is this like... 2000s age Vouvray Molot dessert wine. It's like ice wine where the grapes are like frozen and then squished. So it's like super syrupy, but not too cloyingly sweet. Like it's mm-hmm. not like some ports that are, or Madeiras that are like raisiny. This one's like crisp apples. Because <sighs> that goes really well with cheese too. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like it I'd go, go really nuts. well with some cheese. I would just have tons of cheese berries. Also just beer too. There's just, just lots of beer. <laughs> Basically, cheese, cheese and beer. And cheese and beer. How many people are we talking? How big is it? Filling the dang place. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. go out with a bang, okay? <laughs> it's my 90th birthday, and I feel like I'm ready. I invite every single person that I meet on the street. <laughs> and then that's it. Once the party's over, you just you know, walk I'll be like, Peace out. off into walk. the sunset, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, bury me in a bonsai tree that levitates, <laughs> and then have a cheese memorial. Cheese memorial, yes. The the Parmesan bowl. Yeah, that's right. I have this joke. I wrote 
I wrote this medium post a long time ago about Velveeta, the history of Velveeta. And I don't know if y'all know this about Velveeta, but it, the original idea was developed by a Swiss cheesemaker. Uh, it was to make the byproduct whey into something more useful. So if you if you boil whey again, there is more cheese to be made. Mm-hmm. So Velveeta was was mostly whey, like a block of whey, and it was sustainable. But, you know, Kraft bought the idea and then added chemicals and preservatives. And so it became this, like, sort of joke <laughs> of a cheese. It's not cheese. It's a cheese no, product. It's, yeah. But I had this joke in, in the Medium post <laughs> that after trying Velveeta for the first time, if anyone does an autopsy on me later on, you're just going to find it scraped to the insides of, of my esophagus. I'm going to live forever with this Velveeta crust on the inside of my body. <laughs> anyway. Have you had it since you tried it? No, not really. <laughs> it was an experiment. Yeah, I feel like that's going to happen to me, too. There's definitely going to be a ring of Velveeta in, in my arteries. Um, well, we are out of time. Well, it was so fast. I know. It goes by so fast. Jen, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can listeners find you? Gosh, my username on all social media is at Randwitches. So it's the word sandwiches, but just with an R. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time. <laughs> Me too. And we'll catch you next week on A Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Uh